Chapter 14 of On. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anamika. On by Hilaire Belloc. On Controversy. It is astonishing what a great part of energy goes in our civilized and lettered society to controversy. This country is certainly as civilized as any in Europe, and it is much more lettered than any other. That is, there are more people bothering about print than you will find anywhere else. It has something to do, I think, with living in great towns and depending upon newspapers. But anyhow, there it is, and one of its effects is a continued occupation in controversy. It always astonishes the foreign visitor, and I think it usually irritates the foreign resident. It is a habit often attacked, but all this opposition to it is a foreign opposition at bottom. To the native, controversy is food and drink, and no one would be without it. Now, there is much more in this habit of controversy than meets the eye. If you were to call it a passion for wrangling, you would be exactly contradicting its nature. It is dearest to those who hate wrangling. It is carefully preserved from reality. It is a sort of game and has in it much the same instinct as makes men play other games in a game-loving country. Its object is not conviction, but scoring under set conditions, and it is most interesting to watch how the rules grow up of themselves and how strict they become. It would be the death of controversy to demand a real conquest. When people begin to get into that mood, controversy ends and fighting begins. Nations which are intent on real results fall into civil wars, Nothing is more opposed to the spirit of controversy than the spirit of arms and a creed. Controversy is to the search after ultimate truth or the desire for conviction, what fencing with foils is to slashing with cavalry swords, or what shooting for a challenge shield is to sniping from a tree at the other person in the mud. Its weapon is advocacy. In pure, serene, absolute controversy, the advocate will cheerfully take either side, but even in that less perfect controversy to which, alas, our fallen nature condemns us, and in which there is some suspicion of real feeling, advocacy easily takes precedence over the statement of truth. And that is one of the delights of controversy, as no one knows better than they who have wasted and enjoyed their lives in this delicious pastime. I always think that there is an ill done to controversy when the lists are unequally chosen. It demands for its proper exercise fairly equal chances for either side. For instance, one man gets up and says that England would be much better off if no foreign goods came into it, whereupon the other man, scenting a controversy from afar, says, What about tea? There at once, at the very issue of the bout, you have a knockout, and that spoils sport. Or again, a man says, If you want to improve the communications of London, you must have wider streets, and you cannot have wider streets without interfering with privileged pieces of property. The moment you begin to talk like that, controversy is abominably offended. You might as well play chess with a loaded revolver, or come to the football field with a posse of bravos. No, the essence of this admirable exercise is a sort of picking up sides which balances the argument. You must give reasonable chances for advocacy to either party. Chalk the lists, face the champion square, and then let go. I notice a very proper contempt for, 
and sometimes interference with, that party to a controversy who breaks even the less understood and more subtle rules. For instance, dropping the Mr. in politics. You may say of a parliamentarian, Mr. Biggs was committing political murder when he poured his hidden poison into the sleeping ear of Mr. Higgs. That is all right. It means that old Biggs thought he could get more money by abandoning his leader Higgs. The use of the two misters proves that in your heart, you care not a dump which gets the salary, contracts, and perks. But if you say, Biggs won't take office under Higgs because he thinks there's no money in it, that is blackguardly, for it spoils sport. It is thus a breach of the rules to impute what are called unworthy motives, that is, serious motives. Both parties must, like the champions of the ring, shake hands. And there are a lot of little phrases. They are kept set up in most newspaper offices, and in some are stereotyped in ready-made bars, which come in most usefully for this purpose. Such are, no one can dispute Mr. Noggins's scholarship or his quite peculiar knowledge of Samian Ware, after which you go on to argue that, in point of fact, Noggins is as ignorant as the beasts that perish, and you support your contention with special pleading. So deep-rooted is this love of controversy that one of its favorite playing fields is what one would imagine to be sacred ground, to wit, the security and happiness of one's own country. Jones has only to say that he wants his country to win in some war of life and death, for Brown, tempted by so admirable an occasion, to come up on the other side. But what does Brown do? Do you suppose he says, I want my country to perish? Not a bit of it. That would not be controversy at all. And, what is more, it would be an impossible position for Brown to take up, considering that Brown, by the very fact that he is conducting such a controversy, is stamping his chief national characteristic all over himself. So what Brown does is to show how defeat would ultimately enhance the glory and increase the strength of the country. Both parties agree to this special limited area of operations, and within it they spar round and round and round. Meanwhile, the real war goes on, no harm is done at home, and the nation wins or loses without a link between that awful reality of war and the spillikin match at home. It is very difficult to define where victory in this game of controversy lies. It depends to some extent, like victory in any other game, upon fatigue or lack of attention. I had a controversy in the Times Literary Supplement many years ago about the Battle of Evesham with another person who apparently knew less about it than I did. After the special pleading and nonsense had gone on through five or six moves, I quoted Matthew Paris. My opponent, who wore a mask and a long cloak, came in with a heavy blow, showing that Matthew Paris was dead when the Battle of Evesham was fought. Now, the counterblow to this was as easy as falling off a log. Your spectator, for whose benefit these newspaper duels are fought, would naturally say, this is final. What he did not know was that there is a continuation of Matthew Paris, commonly called under the same name, which does deal with the Battle of Evesham. All I had to do was to write another letter, which I am sure the courteous editor would have printed, seeing that he got all this for nothing, pointing out with the utmost good feeling, tact, etc., that my opponent was swindling, and, by using a false technical term, deceiving the populace. 
Matthew Paris, I should have said, is a conventional term for the original chronicle and its continuation as a whole. And it is a poor trick of controversy. I love that phrase. It is one of the seasoned and rooted phrases. To confuse the general reader with false references. Did I make such a reply? Did I write that letter to the Times Literary Supplement? Not I. I was smitten with an intense desire to go to Belgium, it was before the war, and study the battlefield of Ramey, where is sold the worst liquor in the world. And off I went, leaving my opponent the proud and sole victor on that field. I wish today I knew who he was. To slay or to be slain by a hooded antagonist is poor fun. It ought to be part of the rules of the theater for the man to pull off the hood at the end, either from his own glazing eyes or from those of his prostrate victim, whereupon the ladies would recognize to their amazement the features of Sir Guy de Beaurevage or Mr. Hulp or whoever it might be, and the tourney would end with a feast to the hero after the sentimental burial of the dead. Which reminds me of what a shame it is that so much controversy should be anonymous. It was never meant to be so. After all, controversy is conducted for the amusement of the onlookers, as well as for, and more than for, the exercise and moral health of the principles. And there is not much fun in an anonymous combat, where, for all you know, the opposing parties may really be one and the same person. Many a case have I known in London journalism, where, as a matter of fact, the opposing parties were one and the same person. There was a man who wrote years ago, during the Boer War, to a pro-Boer daily paper which he disliked, complaining of the way in which the teeth of animalculae gnawed into the copper sheathing plates of ships in the South Seas and ruined them. Then he wrote a letter from another place in another false name to the same paper, saying that the first letter was written by an ignormous and describing how the animalculae should be dealt with. There was a tremendous fight lasting for weeks, and it ended, I remember, by a beautiful description of the great ships built at Solothurn in Switzerland, and there launched upon the mighty deep. Even then the editor did not smell a rat. Why should he? Editors cannot always know everything. And he thought, did this editor, that Switzerland lay upon the sea. It was necessary, therefore, for the public to break the ring and burst up the show, which they did amidst great laughter. I know another case where a man, being the literary editor of a great daily paper, reviewed one of his own books with the utmost virulence, but anonymously. He showed in this review a very profound knowledge of the tricks lying behind the production of the book and of the charlatanism of it. Then did he, in his own name, write a dignified reply, and there was quite a little commotion. The reviewer wrote back adding further charges, which were demonstrably true. The author wrote once more, saying his dignity forbade his continuing the quarrel, and the next day both of them counted as one in a meaningless division of the House of Commons. To this day I am never quite certain that the more violent leaders I read in opposing papers are not often written by the same man. At any rate, they are often written in exactly the same style, with the notable exception of one daily paper, which, as the atheist said of his unbaptized child, shall be nameless. All the others, except this notable one, have their leaders written in precisely the same manner. That is what makes me think that they are done for the most part by one man, and what an output he must have, and what a lot of money he must earn.
even at two guineas a thousand, the price of prose in these most happy years of peace, which have seen the birth of a new Europe and the dawn of the day of justice, final and secure. End of chapter 14